I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. As children, we were warned not to talk to strangers. My generation heard the term stranger danger more times than we can count. We were taught to come home on time, never go anywhere without leaving a note or making a phone call, and of course, always be home by dark. I recall one time in the fourth grade, I got into a massive mess. My friend Jamie asked me if I wanted to go home with her and her babysitter who lived two blocks from the school and two blocks from my house. I knew I should go home and leave a note, but I also knew that her babysitter had her own computer in her room and she just happened to have Oregon Trail. So I didn't want to waste time going home and leaving a note, so I just went with her and I thought nothing of it. My mom was a single mom who let me play outside whenever I wanted, go to my friends' houses and to the park. I just didn't think it was a big deal. Well, the video game turned into a trip to the park downtown, which was more than a few blocks away. I even recall walking home down Monroe Street and seeing several cop cars pass by, and I had not a care in the world. That was until I got home. My mom had come home to an empty house, and as the afternoon light began to dim, I wasn't home, and she called the police, and they began to look for me all over town. I had never seen my mom look as frightened as I did when I walked through the door, red-faced and heaving with tears running down her face while an officer stood by her side. I started to feel pretty bad, especially when the police officer decided to berate me for 20 minutes about what a terrible kid I was and how I nearly gave my mom a heart attack. And while I understood they were mad, I didn't yet fully grasp the concept of abduction. It was something so distant from my life. The entire time the officer yelled at me, I couldn't help but think about the fact that they drove right by me. Here he was telling me about the seriousness of what I did and how it affected my mom, who gave them my description and said I was wearing a white shirt, and they drove right by me because I was wearing a yellow shirt. I learned a lot that day. My mom didn't deserve that, and I absolutely made a mistake. And no, I didn't get to go play Oregon Trail at Jamie's babysitter's house ever again. And two, how easy it was to be a missing child in plain sight. It's a scary thought that your child could be taken from you and be a mile away and people just pass by. My mom had the scare of a lifetime that day, and it wasn't until I got older that I realized the gravity of what happened and why she was so scared. I think about it a lot. Every time my kid walks out the door, you can bet your ass I look at what she's wearing. Things have, of course, changed, and a few years after that happened, the tragic abduction and murder of Amber Hagerman occurred, and the Amber Alert system was created, and education on abductions was spread far and wide. And as of this past summer, just a, a side note here, the Amber Alert system has helped to retrieve 1,074 children. Kidnapping often seems like the plot of a movie. A bad guy kidnaps a rich kid, sends a ransom note, gets a massive payday, and returns the kid unharmed. Or, if it's a Mel Gibson movie, there's an iconic scene where the dad realizes the brave hero that helped return his child to him was actually the kidnapper all along. You remember that movie, Ransom, right? Uh, yeah, I've definitely watched it within the last year. Nice. <laughs> Ransom kidnapping gives me a very old-timey feel, 
And that's likely because it's not something we hear about often in the U.S. My theory is that it's no longer that profitable to kidnap a kid and ask the parents for money. Kidnapped victims are more likely trafficked and sold into slave trade. Human trafficking is a very lucrative industry, one of the most profitable in the world. It's a $150 billion industry. So why take your chances kidnapping a rich kid and writing their wealthy parents a ransom note and sit around increasing your chances to be caught when you can nab someone quickly, traffic them, and get your cut of that $150 billion pie? That being said, kidnapping for ransom is still prevalent, just not here. The U.S. isn't even in the top 10 countries affected by kidnapping. The countries impacted the most are in places like South America, Africa, and Asia. According to the website safeatlast.com, 43% of global kidnappings for ransom happened in Asia. So this isn't an old-timey problem. This happens every day. But in the U.S., it's nearly obsolete. However, there was a time when U.S. citizens were frightened of the possibility of child kidnappings for ransom. And today, I'm going to tell you about three cases in our history that helped to fuel the parental nightmare and mold our concept of ransom kidnappings. One of the most famous kidnappings in American history was the 1932 kidnapping of Charles Lindbergh Jr., the 20-month-old son of Charles and Ann Lindbergh. I believe most everyone is aware that Charles Lindbergh was a world-famous aviator that was plastered across every newspaper because of his solo flight glory. And I'm guessing most everyone knows the story of his son's kidnapping. But for those of you that haven't, or those of you that need a refresher, here are some Cliff's Notes. Okay, maybe Cliff's Notes Plus. Charles Jr. was kidnapped from his own home, plucked right out of his crib while he slept on the second story of his parents' house in New Jersey on March 1, 1932. The nurse who cared for the baby realized he was gone and immediately looked for his mother, Anne, hoping that she had him with her. She did not, so Charles was called into the room and a ransom note was located on the windowsill of the nursery. The poorly spelled note read as follows. Dear sir, have $50,000 ready. 25,000 in $20 bills, 15,000 in $10 bills, and 10,000 in $5 bills. After two to four days, we will inform you where to deliver the money. We warn you for making anything public or for notifying the police the child is in good care. The note gave the FBI some clues. For instance, the usage of the German word gut instead of good indicated that the kidnapper was likely German and speaks English as a second language. There were no fingerprints left behind. However, there was a homemade ladder left outside of the house, and this would end up as key evidence. Over a number of days, several ransom notes were sent, and many prominent people got involved trying to help. A retired school teacher and well-known Bronx personality, John F. Condon, offered $1,000 if the kidnapper would give the baby over to a Catholic priest. The kidnapper saw the offer and sent in Charles Jr.'s sleeping suit to the priest with a seventh ransom note. Charles Lindbergh confirmed that the suit did belong to his son. Condon eventually began acting as the Lindbergh liaison and became heavily involved in the case. By March 16th, the kidnapper sent word that it was time to pay the ransom, and the money was prepared and placed into a custom-made box. The money included some gold notes, which were about to be discontinued, so authorities hoped that that would make it more easily recognized. They were able to raise most of the money, but not all, and Condon met with a man who went by the name of John and claimed he was a Scandinavian sailor. 
Condon gave him the ransom, and the man claimed that the baby was in the care of two women and was safe. He wasn't going to hand him over just yet. An agonizing amount of time went by, and then almost two months later, another tragedy would strike. On May 12th, a truck driver named Orville Wilson felt the call of nature, so he stopped on the side of the road, which was roughly four and a half miles south of the Lindbergh house. As he made his way into a tree grove, he stumbled upon a child's body. The child appeared to be a toddler and was decomposed and showed signs of animal scavenging, but it was clear that the child's head was severely fractured. Police were called and it wasn't long before the child was identified as Charles Lindbergh Jr. It was believed that Charles had been killed mere hours after he had been kidnapped. Isn't that interesting? It's just like with Kaylee Anthony that someone happened to stop there to go to the bathroom. And I feel like we hear that not it's not super common, but often enough that someone just happens yeah. to go to that same. I mean, you go five more feet and you miss it completely. That's really fascinating. Right. But it's also it makes you think a lot about how horrible that is that they would continue to toy with this family's emotions knowing perfectly well the child is dead they pay the ransom and then you just ghost them Mm -hmm. well not to open this can of worms but like john benet ramsey where she was already dead in the basement but then there's a ransom note left depending on your thoughts on it it's that same idea right The kidnapping became a homicide investigation, and there were several people who became persons of interest, including a Lindbergh staff member named Violet Sharp. It was noted that she gave confusing and contradictory information when asked about her alibi for the night of the kidnapping. This, of course, drew suspicion from law enforcement, who became increasingly frustrated with her. Unfortunately, Violet committed suicide on June 10, 1932. This had people even more suspicious of her. Why would a Lindbergh maid ingest cyanide if she was innocent? After her death, she was eventually cleared as she really did have a solid alibi. This led to some harsh reviews about how the police handled her investigation and many considered them to blame for her death. Years later, a new lead surfaced. On September 18, 1934, a bank teller in Manhattan came across a gold certificate and the plate number corresponded to one of the numbers associated with the ransom money. The teller notified the manager and they wrote down the customer's license plate number and sedan description. The information was passed to the police who not only confirmed the plate number, but tracked down the car owner. This led them to a man named Bruno Richard Hopman. He was not only a German immigrant, but a carpenter with a criminal history. When they arrested him, he even had a $20 gold certificate on him, as well as $14,000 of ransom money in his garage. Hopman was interrogated for nearly 24 hours. This interrogation resulted in quite a few beatings as well. He eventually told police that he had a business partner, a friend named Isidore Fish, who had given him the money. Fish, of course, was now dead. He returned to Germany after the kidnapping and died on March 29, 1934. Hopman continued to claim that he had nothing to do with the kidnapping and murder and that the reason the money was in his possession is that Fish had owed him money from a business deal and that's what he paid him with. However, it wasn't just the money that tied Hopman to the crime. Investigators eventually found a notebook that contained construction plans for a ladder that was just like the one they found at the Lindbergh home. They also found John Condon's contact information scrawled on the wall of the closet. Further inspection of the house yielded wood consistent with the wood used in the actual ladder left at the Lindbergh home. 
Hotman went to trial in the fall of 1934 and was convicted of kidnapping and murder and was sentenced to death. He appealed the sentence many times, but was eventually executed by electric chair on April 3, 1936. There are those that believe Hotman was innocent and that he was possibly the victim of an elaborate scapegoat situation. Here are some of the reasons why people believe this. John Condon and Charles Lindbergh were the only two people who saw or heard the voice of the kidnapper, and neither man ever identified Hotman as the person they interacted with. The person they gave the ransom to was described as being heavier than Hotman and had different eyes and different hair. Another major red flag was that during the trial, the evidence regarding John Condon's phone number written on the wall was a pretty big cornerstone of the case. In fact, one juror claimed that that was one of the parts of the case that helped convince him of Hopman's guilt. It turns out that a reporter later admitted to writing the number on the closet wall. Several people have also claimed that several witnesses were intimidated in this case and others were completely ignored. Hotman's co-workers provided an alibi for the day of the kidnapping, which included time cards, and these were completely disregarded. Hotman's wife, Anna, continued to fight on his behalf up until she died in her mid-90s. She filed civil suit after civil suit attempting to clear his name. In some of her arguments, she referenced that the latter, which was a major clue in the case, was likely taken out of the attic of their house and planted by police. She continued to stick to the story that Hopman originally gave, that Isidore Fish was likely the kidnapper, and that is who he got the money from that ultimately got him arrested. There are several books written from the point of view that Hopman is innocent, and I have added two of those to my to-read list for this winter because I find this case so fascinating and I want to know more. So if you're an avid reader like me, you should join me. I plan to read Scapegoat by Anthony Scaduto and The Airman and the Carpenter, written by Ludovic Kennedy. And for more books on true crime that we've read for our cases, you can visit MurderInTheRain.com and go to the Murder Reads tab. That is true. Thank you for that plug. On what would have been Charles's second birthday, June 22, 1932, Congress passed the Federal Kidnapping Act. This was widely known as Lindbergh Law. Basically, what it meant was if a kidnapping occurs and the kidnapper crosses state lines with the victim, it would make the crime a federal offense and it could be punishable by the death penalty. That's pretty, pretty bold, but it impacted a lot of cases after that. And it's so funny to think, too, that like that was in the 1930s, which was, you know, 90 years ago. But as a country, we were still so new in figuring out what worked and what doesn't didn't. So it's. Yeah, it's kind of mind-blowing to think like, wow, only 80 years ago we were like, "Mm, state lines is bad. Let's do something about that. Now, I know this case wasn't a Pacific Northwest case, but it is one that I'd bet nine out of 10 Americans would cite as the most famous kidnapping. In fact, it's one that I actually remember learning about in eighth grade history. Well before this kidnapping occurred, when Charles Lindbergh was flying around the world to meet with fans and the media after his victory of becoming the first man to fly solo across the Atlantic, there was another horrific kidnapping, one that does have ties to the Pacific Northwest. Perry Parker was a banker with a seemingly perfect life. A beautiful wife, Geraldine, a son, Perry Jr., and twin daughters, Marjorie and Marion, all living in a comfortable home in 1920s Los Angeles. But as you know, 
happy families aren't always shielded from misfortune, and the Parker family would endure one of the most appalling tragedies that the decade could offer. Just days before the winter holiday break would begin for children all over the U.S., a man both well-dressed and well-spoken entered Mount Vernon Junior High School in L.A. on December 15, 1927. He addressed the woman at the front office and introduced himself as Mr. Cooper from the First National Bank. Cooper told the woman that he was there to pick up the Parker girl and went on to tell her that her father, Perry, was in a terrible accident and he wanted to see his daughter right away. Mary Holt, the school registrar, found this odd because there were two Parker girls, 12-year-old twins, Marion and Marjorie. When she asked which one, Cooper said the younger one, which was Marion. Acknowledging the woman's confusion and possible suspicion, Cooper suggested that Miss Holt was welcome to call the bank to verify his story. This apparently gave her the confidence that he was telling the truth, and she notified the school secretary that she should go get Marion from class as she would be leaving for the day. Marion, who was in class enjoying a Christmas celebration, was told that her father was in an accident and that one of his colleagues from the bank would take her to go see him. The pair walked away from the school hand in hand and climbed into a dark colored coupe while Mr. Cooper comforted the girl telling her not to cry and that she would see her father soon. Marion's twin Marjorie returned home alone that day and their mother Geraldine was instantly frantic wondering what could have happened to her daughter. By the time Perry returned home, a telegram was waiting for him and it read, Do positively nothing till you receive special delivery letter, signed Marion Parker. This was then quickly followed by another telegram. Marion secure. Use good judgment. You are the loser. Do this. The letter went on to detail that Perry Parker needed to obtain 75 $20 gold certificates. This totaled $1,500, which would be the equivalent of nearly $27,000 today. It also went on to say that they should not involve the police or they would never see their little girl again. Creepily, the letter was signed fate, and the word death was written at the top in Greek letters. And to make matters even more devastating, the postscript was written by Marion herself, and it said, Daddy, please do what the man tells you or he'll kill me if you don't. Your loving daughter, Marion Parker. Perry continued to communicate with the kidnapper, and eventually a plan was made to meet one evening at the corner of 10th and Gramercy. Perry made his way there, not realizing that the police were following him. He had the money with him and waited past the agreed time. However, the kidnapper never showed up. It's believed that the kidnapper likely saw the police tailing Perry and fled the scene to avoid detection. The kidnapper, now going by the nickname Fox, continued to contact the Perry family and instructed them to wait for a phone call. That phone call finally came around 7.35 p.m. on December 17th two days after the kidnapping. Fox told Perry to bring the ransom and meet him at West 5th in South Manhattan Place. Perry immediately left and was on site waiting for the kidnapper by 8 p.m. He waited in his vehicle and around 8.15, a dark Chrysler coupe pulled up next to his car. The driver was wearing a bandana over his face and had a gun at his side that he made sure Perry saw. When Fox asked for the money, Perry wanted to make sure that Marion was okay as she sat slumped over in the passenger seat. Fox reached over and pulled down the blanket that was covering her to show Perry her face. He assumed she was asleep, so he handed over the money. 
Once money changed hands, the kidnapper drove his car up the street to 432 Manhattan Place and Marion came tumbling out of the door. Perry, now relieved that his nightmare was ending, went running toward his sleeping daughter. The moment of relief turned to anguish when he cradled her in his arms and realized she was dead. Worse, all of his daughter was not there. He was holding a torso as her legs and arms had been removed. The next day, the rest of Marion's body was located in Elysian Park, wrapped in newspapers. As you can imagine, by now, Los Angeles was in a panic. The discovery of Marion's death led to a reward fund of $50,000, and one of the largest manhunts in L.A. history was initiated. Thousands of police officers and volunteers began combing the city looking for the killer, and he was wanted, dead or alive. Marion's body was taken for an autopsy, and the horror she endured was uncovered. She hadn't eaten food during her three-day ordeal, and it was likely she never slept. While her cause of death was listed as exhaustion and fright, basically what they called it when the cause of death couldn't be determined in this type of situation, but that doesn't get close to explaining what this child went through. It was determined that she had died roughly 12 hours prior, meaning she was likely alive when Perry attempted the first ransom exchange. Right there, I would have been like, this is the police's fault for yeah. following my car. Yeah. Now my kid is dead. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be able to stop myself from that accusing wasn't, them. That wasn't like part of it, right? That wasn't like a sting that no, he, yeah, he was a part of. They just start. They were like, they Let's did follow. not tell him. No, they, they creepily followed behind him, yeah. hoping they could catch the person when all he cares about is his kid. Right. Yeah, that was Oof, a that was a big mistake. Rough. There was no sign of sexual assault or drugs in her blood, but she had been disemboweled and her body cavity stuffed with rags. Her arms and legs were severed at the joints, and her body showed signs of being flogged as her back was so damaged that it appeared it was flayed. I'm sorry, what's flogged? Flogged is like when you're hit in your back, oh, whether it's a okay. whip or a cane. Oh, gotcha. Okay, thank you. And flayed, obviously, is your skin right, coming so apart. Much, yeah. Marion's eyes were sewn open with wire so that she would look like she was awake when her father finally saw her up close. How disturbing. That reminds me of that serial killer keys. Yeah. It's so disturbing. And it's also like there's so much going on here. This doesn't sound like, to counter what you said a little, it doesn't sound like a man that panicked at the sight of police and had to get rid of the body. This no, sounded it's like, unplanned or something. Yeah. yeah. Or he like, cracked. Like either way, this might have been the outcome kind of a thing. Yeah, and I think maybe that's the type of thing you have to tell yourself to not oh, blame yeah. the police too, because or to not blame anyone, everything yeah. yourself. Uh, yeah, oof, blah, blah, blah. gross. The school, yeah, letting them one of the that was so weird that he asked for one of the children. Yeah, and then also kind of weird to think of like the younger one. I guess it's probably a small school that you'd know like, well, she's eight minutes older or whatever. But like even that alone, like, well, I, the I don't think one, he knew they were twins at that exactly, point. No, I just mean like for for the woman working there to yeah. know. Yeah. To be like, oh, so you want Marianne. It's like, th wasn't that more of a red flag? Yeah, or? it was odd. Marianne's autopsy would lead to a very helpful clue in her case. One of the rags that was stuffed into her abdomen was a towel that had been embroidered with the logo of Bellevue Arms. The Bellevue Arms was an apartment complex in Los Angeles. This ultimately led police to a 19-year-old who went by the name Donald Evans. 
Evans had been living in the Bellevue Arms apartments and fit the description given by the junior high staff members. He allowed police to search his apartment, but since there was no evidence of a crime, they left. Authorities eventually learned that the man named Donald Evans was using an alias. Police located the car that he had been using in the ransom exchange, and when they searched it, they found fingerprints, and these prints matched prints on the ransom notes, and they also matched someone named William Edward Hickman. And Hickman had a connection to Perry Parker. Apparently, Hickman was arrested years prior thanks to Perry Parker. He had been working as a motorcycle messenger at the First National Bank, the same bank where Perry worked. Hickman had attempted to cash a forged check at the bank and was arrested. He pleaded guilty and received probation for the offense. He went back to the bank to ask Perry for his job back and was denied. He had been living with his mother and sister in California, but after being unable to get another job, the family moved back to their home state of Kansas. There, he committed a string of robberies and carjackings before returning to L.A. in 1927, driving a stolen coupe and opting to go by the name Donald Evans. Police believe that Hickman fell on hard times and needed money, so he devised a plan to kidnap the banker's child and get some quick cash. They assume the motive was money-related as well as revenge-related. By the time police made the connection, Hickman was on the lam and had quite a head start. It would be about a week before they had a line on where he was. Police checked in with his family in Kansas and El Paso, and no one had seen or spoken to him. But finally, they got word from a gas station worker in Oregon. The man said he believed he served Hickman and that he recognized him from the photos circulating in the media. The attendant told police that he was driving a green Hudson sedan. Another connection was made in Seattle on December 21st when a man purchased gloves, underwear, and a winter hat and paid using $20 bills that matched the ransom funds. What's nuts is that the store clerk recognized the serial number on the bill and called the police. Like, talk about service person what? of the year. I That's attention to detail. I think the best I ever did when was, was when I was working at Subway and I'd actually remember to use the pen to test 50s oh, uh-huh. and hundreds to make sure they were real. Yeah. Like, this guy's actually checking the I've, serial I've numbers. I've seen that. I've seen on, like, a wanted poster where it's, like, serial numbers ending in blank or whatever. And, that, and it's like, who's And guess ever where that came know? from? The Lindbergh kidnapping. So they realized that's the best way to catch these people. Oh, so what they would wow. do is when they, they hear they're in an area, they fax them or they send, you know, right. send a letter with a list of all the serial numbers and, like, circulate it to all the, all the people wow. in town. Finally, a sighting was made by police in Echo, Oregon. While out on a smoke break, two officers spotted a green Hudson sedan drive right by them. They hopped into their car and began to follow, and they literally pulled up beside this green car, pointed a gun at the driver, and forced him to pull over. And that was it. They arrested him without incident, and Hickman looks at them, shrugs, and says, quote, Well, I guess it's all over. Side note. The town of Echo was so proud to have been the ones that made the arrest, they put up a billboard right where he was arrested. Hickman was initially held in a Pendleton jail where he was questioned after his arrest, and he was oddly forthcoming with information, even if most of it was bullshit. He basically said that, yes, he kidnapped her, but that he was not the person that killed her, but he knew who did, Andrew Kramer. Police, while confident that they had the right man, went to locate Andrew and discovered that he had been in prison in L.A. the entire time. So his alibi was pretty airtight. What a dummy. You're going to try to pin it on somebody. You can't they always even, do. You can't even think of like 
a friend who maybe lives a nomadic lifestyle you or just something. Think of the like, person in jail. Uh, uh, my buddy in prison. He yeah, that's be, it. He might be out by now. <laughs> or maybe he thought they wouldn't follow up. Yeah, he also has a vendetta against the same guy as me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, Hickman had become kind of a celebrity at this point. People were flocking to Pendleton to lay eyes on him. The jail was beginning to be overwhelmed, so they decided to extradite him to California. Hickman was placed on a train with police to head back to L.A., and on this trip, he wrote a 19-page confession. Hickman claimed that the crime was not revenge. He had seen the little girl come into the bank with her father, and he saw it simply as an opportunity to get money. Which, I suppose, if it hadn't been so violent, though. I believe that, but I think something switched. And there's a lot of anger there, and that's where he placed it. He then described why he chose to dismember her body, saying it was because he assumed it would be easier to dispose of her if she was in smaller parts. In this document, a gruesome detail surfaced. Hickman didn't believe that he killed her due to frightening her, or even when he strangled her to unconsciousness. He believed she was still alive when he started to dismember her. Now, this was at a time when the media would print every detail they could get their hands on. Our Patreon listeners know from my Belgunis episode how the papers wanted to feed that public desire, but even the media didn't want to print this letter. He talked about how he had her in his apartment and that he strangled her because he was worried that she would make too much noise and get him caught. And then he took her to the bathtub and completed the dismemberment. However, he realized that he would need to bring her with him to the ransom exchange or he wouldn't get the money. That's when he decided to clean her up, brushing her hair and powdering her face. He got out of his apartment and into the car without notice by packing her into a suitcase. Hickman's trial commenced on January 25th, 1928. Prior to its start, he had been working hard at building his defense. The plan insanity. He acted out, he would talk to himself and pretend that he was having a conversation with invisible people. The icing on the cake was that he claimed a supernatural entity named Providence urged him to kill and told him to murder Marion. However, several doctors examined him and concluded that he was sane. He even had a conversation with a a prison guard prior to his trial where he was asking for tips on what a person could do to make sure that they could get guilty by reason of of insanity. And also, didn't he say it wasn't specifically to kill someone? Right. That it was all for money, so... He's mixing up his own story. The evidence against him was strong. They had eyewitnesses that placed him at the school. They had fingerprint matches on the notes, the apartment and the car, the towel match with the logo of the apartment, and a key piece of evidence that I find so intriguing. I've never heard of something quite like this. So when Marion's body was found, there was a partial piece of a Brazil nut in the pocket of her dress. Another piece of Brazil nut was found in Hickman's trash in his apartment. Those two pieces fit together perfectly. They were the same nut. Wow. How bonkers is that? Well, that's nuts. After a 15-day trial and a 36-minute jury deliberation, Hickman was found guilty of first-degree murder on February 9, 1928. He told the press, quote, The die is cast and the state wins by a neck. I don't think I have much to live for, and I don't know yet why I killed the Parker girl, but I did it, and I'll take my punishment. Hickman was sentenced to death. However, there was one complication. 
while on trial, he admitted to another murder. When he was on his crime spree in Kansas, he claimed that he and his friend Welby Hunt shot and killed a pharmacist named Clarence Toms. There was an entirely separate trial for Clarence Toms' death, and his friend Hunt received a life sentence. Hickman was able to live a few more months and enjoy the luxuries prison has to offer, but on October 29, 1928, he made his way to the executioner. He fainted once before the rope was fitted around his neck, but it wasn't fitted well. In fact, it was a little bit loose, which meant he dangled there for about 14 minutes before the doctor officially called his death, and the doctor noted that he didn't die of the expected broken neck, but from a very long strangulation. How fitting. Briefly after Bruno Richard Hopman's trial for the kidnapping and murder of Charles Lindbergh Jr., yet another ransom kidnapping would occur. Again, this would happen to a prominent family and the media and FBI would be heavily involved. Much of what I'm going to tell you about this case comes from the book Deep in the Woods, written by Brian Johnston, who I had the pleasure of having a brief chat with, which will be at the end of this episode. The Weyerhaeuser Company is a major player in the timber industry. The company was founded in Tacoma, Washington by Friedrich Weyerhaeuser in 1900. Currently, they own over 12 million acres of timberland in the U.S. and lease another 14 million acres in Canada. But early on, they only had three office employees and 900,000 acres of land. Before long, Frederick grew the company into one of the largest sustainable companies in the timber industry. By the 1930s, the family was quite established and thriving despite much of the U.S. suffering through the Great Depression. The company was very much still in control by the Weyerhaeuser family, with Frederick's younger son, F.E. Weyerhaeuser, as president and his son, J.P. Weyerhaeuser, as vice president. J.P. lived a charmed life with his wife, Helen, sons, George and Phil, and daughters, Anne and Elizabeth, in a gorgeous mansion in Tacoma overlooking a waterway. I actually went on Zillow and checked out the house earlier today. It is to die for. I mean, it's not it's not huge because mansions of that time were not necessarily gargantuan. The grandfather's house was a lot bigger they actually, the house had a name. You know how the oh, big the fancy manor. houses. Yeah. The Weyerhaeuser Manor. It's slipping my brain. But so the both families lived in, in Tacoma, but theirs oh, was like okay. overlooking the waterway. It's so cute. I need to go drive by there sometime. But as you know, being a prominent family in a time where others are struggling can make you a target. And the Weyerhaeusers were about to have their world turned upside down. That day would happen on March 24th, 1935. Nine-year-old George Weyerhaeuser was a student at Lowell Grammar School. George had many freedoms, and one of them was choosing to walk home from school. Oftentimes, he would walk to his sister Anne's school, and they would be picked up by the family chauffeur and head home. Or sometimes, he would just walk the whole way on his own because it was only five blocks from his sister's school. On this particular day, George was let out of school early for his lunch break and walked a bit of the way with three of his friends. The boys chatted about baseball, took turns seeing who could jump highest and kick rocks the furthest, and then the group eventually split apart into different directions. George arrived at Anne Wright Seminary School before his sister was let out of class. He lingered a bit and said hi to a few teachers and parents, flashing them his trademark grin, and that was the last time anyone saw George that day. When Anne got into the car with their chauffeur Oswald just after noon, she asked where her brother was. 
Oswald wasn't sure, so the pair decided to wait in the car for a bit and see if he turned up. When he hadn't arrived after a few minutes, they concluded that he must have gone home. However, when they got home, he wasn't there. George's parents happened to be out of town and his aunt was taking care of the kids. She opted to call the police once she contacted the school and learned that George had left for home at lunch and never returned for his afternoon classes. By 2 p.m., a search commenced, and that's so fast. Can we just say white privilege here? Oh, yeah. Literally within minutes, she calls police, a search commences, and most of them think he's probably just plain hooky, but they took it very seriously, which is awesome. Yeah, I would think so with a wealthy family. For several hours, police, family, friends, and neighbors searched the neighborhoods and local woods, but there was no trace of George. By 6.30 p.m., George's disappearance was officially deemed a kidnapping when a ransom note arrived on their doorstep in the hands of a motorcycle messenger. The note was addressed to whom it may concern and signed by someone calling themselves the egoist. It demanded a ransom of $200,000 in unmarked bills. They wanted $100,000 in 20s, $50,000 in 10s, and $50,000 in $1 bills. As proof that the kidnapper had the child, George's signature was on the back of the envelope scrawled in pencil. The instructions included were not to involve the police and that they would be given five days to come up with the money. Once they had secured the funds, they were instructed to post a personal ad in the uh, Seattle PI under the name Percy Minnie. Then the kidnappers would instruct them on what to do next. Now, this is an obscene amount of money. I'm talking five days to come up with a very specific amount of currency, which would be over $4 million today. Like, that is near impossible. Yeah. Now, of course, the family did everything they could to comply with this request, and they posted multiple personal ads. The first one was just to assure the kidnapper that they were going to comply with whatever he said. The next one, they told them we have the money ready, and they did somehow with the help of multiple people, they were able to I'm get sure that. I'm sure that that name went really far. And yeah. that Rolodex went really far, too. On May 29th, five days after the kidnapping, the kidnapper sent JP another letter. This time, it requested that he check into the Ambassador Hotel in Seattle under the name James Paul Jones and just wait to be contacted. The letter also contained a note from his son assuring him that he was safe. He complied with the instructions and checked into the hotel, and just after 10 p.m. that night, another note was delivered. This note detailed everything JP would have to do to exchange the ransom for his son. Now, what I haven't mentioned is, at this point in the case, the FBI and media's sole focus is the kidnapping of George. And if you read the book, Deep in the Woods, you get a really, like, a deep dive into how the FBI was formed, how they worked Hoover was actually leading the FBI at this point, and they dropped everything for this case. Like, you're right, this name does go very far. So the FBI actually moved agents into field offices in Washington and Oregon. And at the time, there was only about 600 FBI agents, and most of them were being shifted to the Pacific Northwest to handle this case. Wow. So the FBI is diligently investigating anybody in the area with a criminal background, somebody who had maybe been a kidnapper before or they had suspicion of kidnapping. They were really just looking at anyone. Of course, this was a very hard feat. It's 
unlikely you're just going to like stumble upon this person. So the exchange was initiated as instructed in the letter. JP was told to drive to a specific location and look for two sticks that were sticking out of the ground with a white cloth attached between them. There he would find a message to look for another cloth farther down the road. He got to the second cloth, but there was no note. So the very first cloth had like a tin can with a note in it. He gets to the next one and there's no can, no note. He looks around for over an hour. I mean, he stayed there for two hours wondering if this kidnapper is going to show up. But eventually he gives up and goes back to his hotel. He gets a call the next day around 11 a.m. And on the line is a person who very calmly tells him, that he didn't follow instructions. Now, JP is trying to explain that, you know, I went to the location and there was no note, but the call ended. A few hours later, he gets another call. This time, the person has a European accent and tells him to try again. The caller gives him an address and says he will again find a tin can with a note inside. The address takes him to a dirt road somewhere between Seattle and Tacoma, just off of the highway. There he does find a can with a note instructing him to look for another white sign. He finds the sign and another tin can and this time the note says, leave the car with the money inside and walk back to Seattle. If the money's all there, his son would be returned to him within 30 hours. So he does what he's told and as he's walking away, he gets about 100 meters away and he hears a disturbance in the bushes and he turns and he looks and a man jumps out of the bushes, gets into the car and drives off. So he was right there next to this oh kidnapper. My gosh. Now all they can do at this point is wait. Well, that's not exactly true. The FBI has collected all of the cans that have been used and they are testing for fingerprints, which apparently was a very big thing at this time. This is how they were catching people. So that's great. Now, meanwhile, something amazing happens in the middle of nowhere, Washington. A woman named Walena Boniface, her husband, Lewis, and their four children lived in a farmhouse outside of Issaquah, Washington. Walena was getting back into bed after waking up early to keep the fire burning for heat. And as she's falling back asleep, she hears a soft knock at the door. She gets up, goes to the door, and opens it and finds a young boy. He's covered in dirt and he's shivering wearing wet clothes. She brings him inside, starts taking care of him, and he tells her, my name is George Warehouser, and can you help me get to Tacoma to my family? And at this point, they're like, what? <laughs> like, this is the biggest yeah. news story in all of the Pacific yeah. Northwest, and he's just in the middle of this the woods. This has to be a joke. Right. Well, he comes inside, and after getting warm, getting clean clothes and shoes, and enjoying some hot cocoa, Mr. Boniface and George climb into the car and head toward Tacoma to reunite George with his family. Now, they stop in Renton, south of Seattle, to fill up on gas, and George offers to pay for it with a dollar bill that he claims the kidnapper gave him. Or the kidnappers. Oh he gosh. says kidnappers. And this is the first time we know Ooh, it's more, more than, than one, one person. So he pays for it because he's like, thank you for driving me out of your way. You know, he was not a rich farmer. So that was quite kind of him. Now, on this drive, they stopped several times to make phone calls. And George attempted to call his house. But it was the line was busy, which is really unfortunate. Uh, but eventually, Lewis makes contact with the police and says, I'm bringing George home. Like, FYI, he showed up on my on my porch and I'm taking yeah, him home. Yeah, please don't arrest and or shoot me when I pull up with this kid well, in my car. And that's a good point because as they're driving, a police car actually meets them 
and they pull over and they exchange the kid rather than making this guy drive all the way to Tacoma. But he was a little worried. Like, I don't want to look like I'm the kidnapper. But George can explain everything. Yeah, that's true. George is eventually reunited with his family and he had quite the tale to tell. It begins on his walk home from his sister's school. He waited around for his sister but grew bored because, you know, he's nine years old. And he decided to walk home and make lunch for himself and his sister. How sweet is that? He starts the trek and he decides he's going to cut through the tennis courts. This is going to shave off a couple minutes of his walk. And these tennis courts were just three blocks from his house. As he exits the courts, he sees this man in his 40s with a mustache and brown hair get out of his car and approach him. The man politely asks George for directions, but as he starts to tell him the directions, the man grabs him and forces him into his car. And that's when George realizes there's another man in the driver's seat. They force George to lay on the back of the, of the seat or on the floor and they cover him with a blanket. And they're in the car for at least an hour and all the while he's hearing them kind of whisper back and forth. Eventually the car pulls over to the side of the road and the blanket is removed from over his body. One of the men hands George a pencil and tells him to write his name on a white envelope. Once he does, he's blindfolded and the men take him out of the car and march him through what he imagines is the forest because he can't see, right? All he can do is hear, smell, feel, and he feels bushes brushing up against his legs and arms. And then he hears running water and that's when he's lifted up and carried. And he thinks this is because the men are like crossing a stream. He gets set back down and they walk for over a half of a mile before they stop again. And when they do stop, They take his blindfold off and he looks down and he sees this hole in the ground. It's four feet by four feet, he estimates. And he's put inside the hole. Now they chain his his wrist and his leg to the hole so he can't get out. But they do give him a blanket and some cushions and a lantern. Once he's in the hole, the men cover it with branches to keep him out of view. He then hears them talking about how one of them is going to stay to guard the hole and the other is going to go to town and mail the ransom note. George is in there for a whole day and night. The next evening, he's taken out of the hole and blindfolded again and he gets uh, walked back to the vehicle. But this time, instead of putting him in the back seat, they say, you're going to have to ride in the trunk. Now, the trunk in the 1930s was tiny. So this kid had to like curl up into a ball with his knees to his chest. What George didn't know at the time was that they chose to change locations because they actually ran into other people in the area and they didn't want to get caught. So they're like, oh, crap, let's get him out of here and go find somewhere else. So they're back in the car and it stops again. And George is led out to walk through what he imagines is another forest. They eventually stop and he just has to stand there Uh, blindfolded and he hears somebody like shoveling dirt so this time rather than a big four by four pre-made hole he's actually put in a freshly dug pit the kidnapper again gives him a cushion two blankets two lanterns and once he's inside they cover the pit with tar paper and boards and once again one man was left behind to guard the pit and the other leaves By May 26th, George was moved yet again. 
He got back into the trunk and they drove a longer distance. George was quiet as instructed, but the drive was really long. So he eventually asked if he could get out of the trunk. So the men pull over and he's let out to walk around a bit, use the bathroom, and then they chain him to a tree and they proceed to like lay down a blanket and have a picnic. And they feel kind of bad because George is, you know, just kidnapped, chained to a tree. So they bring him a blanket and they bring him food. And George reflects on this as like, it's pretty good food. Like I got a sandwich and a banana. It was pretty good. And at this point, I'm not sure if he knows this or not, because this wasn't in his details given. But another person joins these pair of kidnappers and it is a woman. Mm. And so I, he doesn't talk about her and the woman knows he's there. So I'm not sure if he ever saw her or not. I imagine. And it really makes you while you're saying this it really puts the previous case into such a different perspective because this behavior is definitely what I think of more so when you're talking about a kidnapping it's like I'm kind of awkward because I don't want to be mean but I can't be nice because I'm I'm a kidnapper and you need to be scared of me yeah and you know you do think of ransom where it's just like we're kind of fumbling and not really sure right and it's like that's believable as we chose this kid because he's got rich a rich name Whereas this other guy, it's like, I feel like it was totally that's a different. crime of opportunity. Maybe I can get some money out of this from this jerk that I hate. And while I'm at it, I'll take the opportunity to do horrible, horrible things. Yeah. So at one point, George asks them where they are and they say, oh, we're in Oregon. But unbeknownst to George, this is not true. This is a total lie. And they're actually eastern. They're in eastern Washington by now. There were many times throughout these days that George reflected on a situation And he wasn't frightened by what was happening to him because the men were not cruel. They fed him and they were actually pretty nice to him. At least one of them was. And I find that really impressive because I'm sure most nine-year-olds would be very scared by this situation. But he was just very like chill, go with the flow. And I guess they didn't give him any reason to be scared at that point. George was once again put back into the trunk of the car after they had their lunch and they eventually arrive at the kidnapper's destination. This time it was a house and George was led into a closet that was roughly 10 feet by four feet with wooden floors, which was a bit of an improvement, I guess you could say. The closet was equipped with a mattress and a small table with a chair. Here he lived for a few days, getting to know one of his kidnappers who stayed in the house with him, despite not knowing their real names. On the evening of May 31st, George was told it was time to go home and to climb into this box that one of the men had with him. He was then lifted up and carried outside. Once they get to the car, he was let out of the box and again got into the trunk of the car. Hours later, George was let out of the trunk and guided outside of a small shack. Then the kidnappers left, leaving George alone at 3.30 in the morning in the middle of nowhere. He walks along this road until he finds a house and he knocks on the door and the window and he can see that someone's inside, but the man will not answer the door. So eventually he wanders off again and then he discovers the farmhouse where the Boniface lived. So while George's story is intriguing, it really doesn't give you a lot of insight into who the men were or where they actually kept him. The only thing George could really offer to help in the search was the description of the men. 
so he knew their, what they looked like. And also the cars that they used. He spent a lot of time in that trunk. Oh, so he actually yeah, he knew, knew that car. It's like a 1932 to 1933 Pontiac, and the license plate was B29867. So he had, you know, he had seen it enough times that he could tell them. And then he said, it's either a gray sedan or I was in a gray Hudson. And I think that's because they used multiple cars. Oh, yeah. So while these cars are actively being searched for, the FBI actually got their first solid lead the day after George returned home. Now, this was thanks to the Lindbergh kidnapping and what they learned, that tracking the serial numbers is going to get to some of these kidnappers faster. On June 2nd, 1935, the FBI was alerted to one of the ransom bills being used in Huntington, Oregon. I have no idea where that is. Do you know where that is? I don't know where that is. I'm going to have to look it up. Sorry, folks. (laughs) I don't know where something is. The man had paid for train tickets to Salt Lake City. The FBI sent out notices to all the local stores in Salt Lake to give them a list of the serial numbers of the ransom money, and special agents were waiting nearby just in case one was used. Within a week, police were again notified that a bill was used. This time, a woman had purchased clothing at the Woolworth store on June 8th. The woman was taken into custody and questioned by the FBI. In her wallet, they found several more ransom bills. The woman gave the police several stories, including one that involved her fake name, but they eventually determined who she was, and that was Margaret E. Whaley, married to a man named Harmon Metz Whaley. Now that Margaret was in custody, the agents moved to also arrest her husband, who they found on the front porch of their Salt Lake City home. Of course, the Whaley's initially denied involvement with the kidnapping, but eventually Harmon spilled his guts and led the agents to where he stashed his share of the money, over $90,000 buried in a sack near a campsite. I mean, I guess no one would find it. That's, uh, that seems... Now, here's the thing. Like, I think, Silly. I think he was worried about his accomplice. Like, I think they were oh, fighting over the funds. And yeah, and was... if she's already out shopping and making it like bringing attention to herself because she's going shopping. Yeah, I mean, it was a good plan to actually store it in different places. But maybe not outside. Yeah, I think it would get, I don't know, wet or something. I mean, like probably a waterproof bag. Or animals or land changes. Or you like, the land changes, you would go back and you can't find it. Like someone planted a tree here. That's like when killers try to bring the police to the bodies and they're like, well, uh, I think this is where it was. Yeah. Whaley tells authorities that his wife was not involved in the kidnapping planning or execution. She only got involved when he brought her to Spokane, Washington. She had stayed in an apartment with his accomplice while he stayed with George in a rented home. The accomplice was a man named William Daynard, who also went by aliases William Mann and Swede Davis. The two had the pleasure of meeting each other while they did a stint in the Idaho State Penitentiary. The duo had a plan for after they let George go, and this was split up the ransom money and go your separate ways, and then eventually we'll meet back up at Whaley's wife's parents' house in Salt Lake City. When the FBI go to Margaret's parents' house, they find out from her father that Daynard had come by previously, and he learned that the Whaley's had already come and gone, so he opted to just take off on his own. The Whaley's also told the FBI about their hideout shack. Now, this was a place outside of Issaquah where they actually stashed their cash, and it was also where they let George go. So after they let him go, they split up the cash in the shack, and that's where they left from. 
So the FBI goes to the shack and they find fingerprints that match the fingerprints from the scavenger hunt cans, as well as the ransom letters. The prints implicated all three people, Margaret and Harmon Whaley and William Daynard. By June, all of them were indicted for kidnapping and conspiracy to kidnap, though only the Whaley's were actually in custody. Harmon Whaley pleaded guilty on June 21st and was sentenced to 45 years for kidnapping and two for conspiracy to kidnap. And these were to be served concurrently in Alcatraz. Yeah. You don't take a rich man's boy. No, you don't. The next day, Margaret Whaley pleaded not guilty to the same charges. She ended up going to trial in Tacoma a month later. And after four days, she was found guilty and sentenced to two 20-year terms, and these were to be served concurrently at a detention farm in Michigan. Now, I personally found this to be a little harsh. I mean, here, the husband, I mean, maybe the husband was just trying to protect her, but here he's saying she, she had wasn't. nothing to do with the plan. Well, but she's got fingerprints even on the cans Exactly. That's it. It's on the clues, and if you were having anything to do with those letters, you were more involved, mm-hmm. right? And it's really shocking, too. I mean, like, yeah, you took someone's child and it's like a fear and a pain I can't even fathom. Those are such extreme sentences. You would think that they would have hurt him or assaulted him or done something. Well, you know why? Because, because it's the Lindbergh the, in the Lindbergh before. Oh, yeah. Now they have all of these laws mm-hmm. and everyone is really looking at kidnap- kidnappers differently and giving well, them harsher and, sentences. And like you look at these guys and they actually got the money. And return the kid, but it's like we it's like we don't negotiate with terrorists. You yeah. have to be like, Yep, it all worked out for you, but now you're going to Alcatraz for fifty years. Bye. The same month that the Whaleys were captured, William Daynard was spotted in Butte, Montana. An officer attempted to apprehend him, but he got away. However, they did find his car, and inside was over fifteen thousand dollars of the ransom money. About a year later, some of the ransom bills were again being used, and this was in several locations along the West Coast. However, it appeared they had been altered. Somebody was trying to change the serial numbers with ink to just, like, make it look differently, but it was very obvious that it was the same ones. As we've learned from Real Housewives, just wash your money. Come on now. (laughs) Drawing on it. On May 6, 1936, multiple banks in Los Angeles notified police that the ransom bills were being exchanged. The man was using the name Bert E. Cole, and they were able to get his car description and his license plate number. The car was located by FBI agents during a neighborhood search, and they waited until a man entered the vehicle. Now, once he got into the vehicle, he couldn't actually start the car, which makes me wonder if the agents were, like, oh, fiddling with yeah, the car. Yeah, they just popped open and just beep. Like, take out, out a spark plug. Yeah. So he gets in, he can't start it, and they just like close in on him. And lo and behold, it's William Daynard, and he's finally arrested. He pleaded guilty and received two concurrent 60 year prison terms for conspiracy to kidnap and kidnapping. Now, his terms were so severe because he was considered the mastermind of the mm. plan. He actually was the one that came up with it, and he went to Whaley, who he met in prison, and asked him to help him execute it. And poor Margaret was brought into the mess and likely felt like she had no choice but to support her husband. And not to just like full on support her, but I just want to give you a little bit of background on her. Please do, because I'm picturing what's her name in Ransom, where it's like 
yeah, you're kind of by default tied into it, but you're also into it. Like you could go untie that kid well, or you could let that kid go. You were there. So she's Mormon and she married this man and like her whole life. And as you know, Mormons, especially in the early 1900s, they were like there to serve their husband. That's true. So to disagree with one was not that a good was idea. Very bad. Yeah. And mm. as much as Whaley sounds like a nice guy from the way George talks about him being nice to him. Mm-hmm. He's not necessarily and he still a nice guy. A child. Exactly. <laughs> like even if exactly. you're nice to the kid, you still kidnap. So part the of kid. me wonders if she really only had involvement because she saw no other option, or fear because you don't know this other guy either. So you've got two men, and you've got money involved. She was with Maynard like way way more than her husband during right. the actual week. Of I guess the it's hard too to be like um, Daynard. Sorry, I said Maynard. <laughs> it's it's hard to. Um, it's hard to separate that, I guess, yeah. to to see it and be like, you you could have done something. You could have walked away and called the police or you could have it's untied very hard the to. kid. But then it's like these guys probably made it pretty clear well, that if she did anything. And then she's just la da spending the money. And exactly. she met with a friend in Salt Lake and was yeah. buying her friend's stuff. So she you was clearly benefiting. You weren't using that money to like donate to find the children. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. She wasn't that concerned having been involved. No, but I still think that was a pretty large That's prison harsh. term. Yeah. Or, but like know, you said, they're trying, to, camp. they're trying to teach a lesson to everybody. Like, you're not going to get famous. You're right. not going to get rich. Don't and go around And they were getting kidnapping. famous, and that was the problem. So they had to give harsh sentences, yeah. I think, to yeah. be like, guys, this isn't a fun thing to uh-huh. get you famous. <laughs> Daynard was initially sent to Leavenworth Prison in Kansas, but was later reunited with Whaley in Alcatraz in 1939. During his confession, it was learned that he, too, had an accomplice while on the run. He had recruited a man named Edward Fliss to launder the ransom money for him. Fliss's job was to travel with Daynard along the West Coast and change large portions of the money into small denominations, and in return, he'd get 15%. Not a bad deal until you get caught. So Fliss was eventually arrested and charged with conspiracy and accessory after the fact to kidnapping. As he was in jail during the time of the kidnapping, the conspiracy charge was dropped and he pleaded guilty to the accessory charge and received a 10-year prison term. After all was said and done, the warehousers got back a little over $150,000 of their $200,000, but I don't think that really mattered to them because they got their son back. And that's priceless and something I'm sure the Lindbergh and Parker families would have spent their entire fortune to get. Daynard petitioned the courts for release in 1945, citing that he was intimidated into making his confession and that the officers threatened him with guns. But that petition was, of course, dismissed, and he was eventually released in 1965 and stayed out of trouble, I think, until he died in 1992. Wow. Alcatraz. It works. Margaret was released in 1948 after serving 13 years of her 20-year sentence. When she got out, what did she do? Divorced her husband, started a new life in Salt Lake, and remarried, and she died in 1984. George Weyerhaeuser has been praised for his calm, collective nature while spending a week with his kidnappers. He returned home seemingly unfazed and went right back into normal life. He grew up, and like his father and grandfather and great-grandfather before him, he went into management at the Weyerhaeuser Company. Over the years, he received several letters from Harmon Whaley apologizing for what he had done to him. When Whaley was eventually released from prison at the age of 52, 
George gave him a job at one of the Weyerhaeuser plants. For real? Yeah. He forgave him and he gave him a job. Wow. Isn't that That's amazing? That's pretty impressive. He is one cool guy. Now, the author of the book that I read for this case, we had a chat, and if you listen to it, you hear us talk about it, but he was so shocked by how chill this man was about it. Now, he was told that he wouldn't talk about this, mm -hmm. that all over all these years he wouldn't talk about it. Well, he somehow got the guy to call him, got George to call him back, and George was like, I'll talk about it. I don't care. <laughs> I think it was his family that didn't want to talk yeah, about it. Yeah, they didn't want to rehash it or... Right. But Make he was, that the only thing he is, you know, exactly. this thing that happened to you when you were nine. He was just like happy to get that firsthand account of it because mm -hmm. everything else was out of newspapers and police reports. Um, now, one of the things I found very interesting as you read the book, and I highly recommend the book. And I know I, I always say that, but this one I really do. Um, <laughs> All the other times I'm lying. No, I mean, <laughs> it's, I was telling Brian on the call, like, I just feel like the caliber of books I read is getting better and better um, that the publisher sends me. But uh, in the book, he does this deep dive on the FBI and he talks about how the public got involved. And it reminded me a lot of what you and I were talking about with the Gabby Petito case that during your one of your theories is during covid people wanted something to look forward to or help and getting gabby home was one of those mm -hmm. things well everyone in the u.s wanted to help find george mm -hmm. and they were the fbi was getting letters from like children in school offering their ideas on what happened or how you could catch the the perpetrator oh and hoover was reading these himself like, this was a different time. I mean, he was a different kind of guy as well. <laughs> yeah, but I just think it's so fascinating. So yeah. The book is just kind of a little of everything. Yeah, that's very interesting. I'm excited to hear the interview. Is that coming up next? In a moment it is. Oh, okay. So as I mentioned earlier, I read the book Deep in the Woods, which is all about the case of the kidnapping of George Weyerhaeuser. Now, I found it to be delightful. I not only got far more details than I could find online or in the newspaper clippings, you feel like you get a sneak peek of what 1935 was actually like, from the language he used to the descriptions of things like how much a tank of gas costs or how many people actually used motorcycle messengers to deliver letters. I mean, to like how much a drink costs, how much a dress costs. You really get like this picture of a different time. I have a paperback copy of the book thanks to our friends at Post Hill Press, a digital version from my Scribed membership, which is my favorite reading app, and I bought an audio version so that way I could read it without using my precious writing and sleeping time. And I have to tell you, the audiobook was phenomenal. I love the narrator, and if you care, his name is Roger Wayne, and you should check out all of his books. But obviously, as you can tell, I liked this book. So without further ado, here is a brief conversation between myself and Brian Johnston, the author of Deep in the Woods. I would like to welcome Brian Johnston to our show to talk about his book, Deep in the Woods, the 1935 kidnapping of nine-year-old George Weyerhaeuser, heir to America's mightiest dynasty. Welcome. Thank, Thank you for you. joining us. My pleasure. So before we jump in and talk about the book, which I finished mere minutes ago, I, <laughs> I, I mean, it was really the deadline I hit it. I ended the last chapter. Um, I just wanted you to brag about yourself for a little bit. So from what I've read, you have a few Emmys under your belt. 
they're regional Emmys, so let's not get carried away. Oh, but, <laughs> come on. It's still uh, something to brag about. I don't have any. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. Yeah, I, when I worked, I worked in television for 25 years. I worked down at KGW, Channel 8 in Portland, Oregon for, for 10 years, and then uh, at the ABC affiliate and the CBS affiliate help here in Seattle for many years as well. So, you know, over that much time, you, you should win a couple. <laughs> just, <laughs> That's good. It comes, after 25 years in, in the business, it, it kind of comes to the territory, I think. So what made you move to writing books? Uh, well, I've been a writer. I mean, that's one of my main jobs as a, mm -hmm. as a writer. And I've written several books before. And I was just looking for, um, I was looking for another Northwest-centric book to write about. And I stumbled across this story. And, and the more I dug into it, the more I was absolutely fascinated. And, and there is no hyperbole about what I'm about to say. This was the most fascinating story that I've ever stumbled across in, in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, nothing. I can't come up with anything that has as many layers as this does. Oh, yeah. I mean, what I love about it, it, it was such like a epitome of a story for the time, too. Like in your book, mm -hmm. you talk about so much from the FBI and kind of how Hoover plays into it and the media and just all the like big things that were happening at the time, which I'll, I'll get into a little later. I really, really liked it. But what I thought was crazy is that I'd never actually heard about it growing up. Yeah. I lived in Washington for a year and we had to have a Washington history class. And I'm shocked we didn't learn about this. Yeah, I was, like... uh, I'm one of the people that wasn't familiar with it either. I've uh -huh. run across a lot of people that have heard about it, but those who have heard about it don't know the half of it. That's right, they I've just, learned. a cursory, oh yeah, there was a kidnapping, right? Exactly. There's so much to it. Yep. So much to it. And um, the fact that it happened so close after the Lindbergh kidnapping too, there's just a lot of parallels there that I found yep. interesting. So you cover a lot of different topics in your book. So it was it just that the story captured you and you wanted to elaborate or were you interested in covering true crime? No, I was interested. Uh, this was my first true crime book. Um, right. I, but when I stumbled across a story, and, you know, like I said, I dig a little deeper and it literally was on a nightly basis, me running upstairs to my wife screaming, you cannot believe what <laughs> I just learned. It literally was, it was a nightly thing. I would just, it was fascinating. I just stumbled across these nuggets of gold on a daily basis going, right. how can nobody have written a story about this before? I, I couldn't believe my eyes. Definitely. So, you know, I'm an avid, avid true crime reader and I like historic true crime as well. And my gold standard up until today was, I don't know if you've read any of the genre, but Greg Olson from Seattle area, he mm -hmm. wrote Starvation Heights, which was about uh, another shocking Washington yeah. case. And I covered that one. And I love, I loved his book because there were so many details. And when I read yours, I go, oh gosh, I have a new gold standard because <laughs> <laughs> it's not just the details. Like you do, you have a lot of details, but it's the little nuggets of feeling like I was there in the time. Like I was immersed in 1935. It was bizarre from talking about the boys walking down the street, talking about baseball to Margaret um, buying a dress for $3 or trying on a $3 <laughs> dress and how much it costs for a drink. The little things that we just skim over that we have no idea how much someone makes in a year in 1935. You just kind of wove that into the story and it was so effortless. So congrats. Oh, I, I loved it. I appreciate um, that. And, and, a lot, and I had to take out a lot too. 
really? Oh yeah, the editor said too much information. Take it out. Like, no uh, way. Okay, okay. I love information. <laughs> so tell me about researching and 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 how you wrote it. Like, what is the anatomy of how this book was made? Because I was just enthralled by it, and I thought, oh my god, he must have been researching for years. Well, it took a while. I'll tell you that much. Um, it first started out with just doing basic internet research. Okay, looking for anything. You know, Google in George Warehouser kidnapping, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then I'd start wading through those. And what I found was there was a lot of inconsistency in what I found online. Um, not a lot of really, not a lot of detail. Um, and so I just started getting more curious and more curious. And so I said, okay, well, let's go, let's go where I really know where the information is. So I just did the, the good old Freedom of Information Act reached out to the FBI and said, I want information on the George Warehouser kidnapping 1935 from this date to this date. And two weeks later, I had 2,500 pages of FBI documents. And they said, you want some more? And I went, nope, I think that's plenty. Thank you very much. (laughs) Wow, that's so crazy that they just easily did that. And so fast. I mean, that's what they do. Like I said, Mm -hmm. the Freedom of Information Act is a glorious thing. Then I started digging into the newspaper archives, the Seattle Times, the Seattle PI, um, you know, the New York Times, all over the place. And that was a lot of fun. That was an awful lot of fun reading the news because A, it was huge news. This was on the front page of every newspaper in the region for quite a while. And it was also on the front page of most every major newspaper in America. I mean, it was on the front page of the New York Times. Um, the London Times actually sent a correspondent across the pond to cover the story. Yeah. Journalists at the time, journalists combined were writing approximately 40,000 words a day on the kidnapping. That's wow. half a novel every day. Um, and so there was no lack of material for me to choose from. And then... I went to the National Archives uh, in Seattle and went through the court documents. And so I'm actually reading exactly what they were saying while on the stand and, you know, stuff like that. So that was cool. Um, and then the, the piece de resistance, I got to interview George. Yeah, which is amazing. How lucky. Yes. How lucky are you? That was a hard yeah. thing to pull off, let me tell you. Too. Was it? Did it take a lot of time to get set up? It took a long time just to get in touch with him, try to find him, mm-hmm. try to get a phone number. It was hard. But, <laughs> and everything that I, you know, all the research that I'd done o- over the, you know, the months and months leading up to it, I kept reading in articles how uh, George doesn't like to talk about the, the kidnapping. George right. does not like to talk about the kidnapping. I heard that. I, I read that so many times. So when I finally found a phone number that evidently they it was just a voicemail and they checked it once a week. So I left a message, you know, Hey, I'm Brian Johnston, I'm writing a book and I'd like to talk with you about your kidnapping unless it's an uncomfortable subject. Mm-hmm. So imagine my surprise when three days later, I get a voicemail from, hi, Brian, this is George, not an uncomfortable subject at all. Happy to talk with you. Oh, that's amazing. I couldn't believe my ears. Yeah. Because everyone says he doesn't like to talk about it. Well, evidently that wasn't the case because he and I had a very nice chat. That's cool. I mean, maybe that was the media covering up for the fact that they just didn't talk to him, that they said, oh, we couldn't, he didn't no, want to talk. About no, it. his, his family members said the same thing. 
Oh, fact, really? Here, here's, here's an interesting little tidbit. Okay, so about two days, three days after I talk with George, I get this phone call from a gentleman, and he's a warehouser representative. Mm -hmm. Mr. Johnston, I understand you talked with George Warehouser. Um, yeah, I did. I see. Well, this family members have contacted me, and they're very concerned about this. Oh, no. And I'm like, uh, why? Because George doesn't talk about the kidnapping. I'm like, well, he did talk to me about the kidnapping. But George doesn't talk about the kidnapping. But he did talk to me about the kidnapping. <laughs> he's like, then he's like, so is this a, a newspaper article? No, it's a magazine article. No, it's a book. Yeah, a book of fiction. No, it's it's not a book of fiction. It's a it's a it's a factual book. And he's silent for a while. And he was willing to talk to you about this. I went, yeah, silent, silent. Don't know what to tell you, Brian. You got lucky. Good luck. He hung up. Wow. Maybe you just got him on a good week. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But when I talked with him, he was he was charming. He was engaging. He was mm -hmm. funny. I just we just had a really lovely time. Yeah, it's funny because as I read the book, I, I really got the impression that he was super like a laid back kid about it. It didn't seem to have too much, too many scars over what happened. I thought that seems so weird. And that's then you really... talk to him about it and I'm like, wow, like that's kind of mind blowing that he can just talk about this so easily. Yeah. And when I asked him point blank, did you have nightmares? Did you have PTSD, anything? And he went, nope, nope. Wow. Nothing at all. So <laughs> like, it's like he's either very crazy. well adjusted or. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It surprised me. It really did. I also was very surprised when you talked to him about um, hiring Whaley, giving him a job after he got out of prison. And I thought, what oh, yeah. an amazing. Spoiler person. alert. Spoiler <laughs> alert. <laughs> that's, in, that's in the story. I'm sorry. They'll all be spoiled. <laughs> it's so well written, that's... though. I'm sure they'll buy it. <laughs> Well, see, my, like, here's my attitude toward that. You know, when I went to go see Titanic, I knew that the boat was going to sink, oh, yeah, but, I but I still enjoyed the movie. Exactly. So, yeah. So for those of you who aren't familiar with, here's the spoiler, George, okay, uh, 25 years after he's released, he gets a phone call out of the blue from one of his kidnappers who'd just been released from prison. And the guy said, George, I can sure use a job. And George hired his former kidnapper That's just... because he thought because he thought he would appreciate it. I mean, what what an end to that story, I guess, you know, I know. I know. and caring and just seems like a really wonderful person. Yeah, wow. That's the type of stuff that I just kept stumbling across little things like that on a regular basis. So you mentioned that you're just constantly surprised. Was there one thing that you were just most taken aback by when you were researching this case? Was it just nugget after there nugget? Was, <laughs> there were so many. Honestly, there were so many. You know, the, the 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 interesting things about the ransom note, you know, how the the kidnappers wanted 200,000 bucks in small unmarked bills. All right, $200,000, that's three and a half million dollars in today's money. The average person back in 1935 made $1,500 a year, okay? So this is the equivalent of 133 years of salary. Wow. Okay? So then one of the demands was that uh, don't alert the newspapers. 
don't alert the media. <laughs> right. So <laughs> what did the news, what did the Seattle Times do? They posted the ransom note on the front page. That's called irony. All right. Yeah. And then the whole, the money drop, which was something straight out of a Humphrey Bogart movie. I mean, it was, that's, honestly that, that's, in my head oh, i'm like this is so like suspenseful <laughs> it is it's so wonderful it's wonderful and then um oh another thing that was so cool was when i was doing the research through all the fbi documents but then i started stumbling across all the letters that the general public sent to the fbi offering to help the fbi crack the the kidnapping case Maybe it had something to do with the fact that it's during the depression and people wanted to just do something where they felt that they were helping out in some right. way. And I'm looking at these letters, these handwritten and cursive letters, dear Mr. Hoover, you know, here's an idea that you might want to try to capture the kidnappers. And I, I smiled at that in the book. Cause you, you talk about um, the, the school class that wanted to yes. help um, yes. kind of picking apart the profile of who did this. And I thought, Wow, this is just like today. You know, we act like the media gets involved nowadays, like it's a new thing. And it's really people want to help the, the whole Gabby Petito case that's going on right now. It's, this is like a modern version of this older case where everyone wanted to assist. And I thought, wow, this is so interesting. And the access to just be able to send a letter to the FBI, head of the FBI, I'm just going to yeah. handwrite you a letter. <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah. And I have to share, I have to share with your listeners that my, my letter, the, the letter that cracked me up the most was a guy said, said, you know, okay, here, here's my, here's my thought. The, the money has to be transferred to the kidnappers using a, a suitcase or something like that. Okay. So put in a booby trap. So when they open the box or open the case, it sprays their face with acid or better yet, you put in a secret compartment. So when they open it up, out jumps a cobra. <laughs> I mean, points for points for creativity. <laughs> That's the kind wow. of stuff that people would send to J. Edgar Hoover to help them capture the kidnappers. And wow. another guy, another guy reached out to the FBI who considered himself a a scientific genius. I mean, it was like Wiley Coyote. Okay. Super genius. He has a business card that said scientific genius. And he offered this, this brilliant plan for a thousand dollars to help capture the kidnappers. Scientific genius. That's a new one. I should uh, write that down. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Love it. Oh my goodness. So, you know, from what you know about this case and just living in modern day, how do you think it would be different if this happened today? Well, Do you think it would play out similarly? No, I don't. Um, for many reasons. Um, boy, the times have changed. Back then, Hoover and company, the, the warehousers said, back off. Just back off until we do the money drop. And the FBI said, okay. And so they let George Warehouser's dad drive off into the dark at some you know, mysterious location with 200,000 bucks in cash in a suitcase and they didn't get anywhere near it. They let him just do it. No, nobody followed or anything. Nobody followed it. And wow. they just sat back and said, okay, it's up to you. You want to give your money away? You are more than welcome to. And they, and they did, they just let him do it. And, and let's see here, 7% of the entire FBI force was sent to Seattle and Tacoma 
to cover this. That's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> That's a, that lot, a lot of bodies, a lot of bodies. Yeah, you talk about that, about them sending people from Portland and bringing people in, and it makes you really think about, well, how many people are there? And yeah, they, their attention was on it. It was the number one case at the time. It's it was. Very interesting. Uh, you know, I like that you brought up the the ransom money, because what was interesting to see is what happens after. And this isn't something people hear about a lot is, okay, if you pay a ransom, what happens if some of that money is gone and mm -hmm. burns up? Um, who refunds it? Is the family just out the money? So it was interesting to see what happened to the money in the book. Um, mm -hmm. I just never really thought about that, I guess. I found that well, interesting. Some of, some of the money uh, got burned in a potbelly stove. Uh, you know, Harmon, Harmon Whaley was panicking and he thought that the, the, the feds were closing in. And so he threw 3000 bucks in oh the stove and, and lit it on fire. And so, of course, I asked George, I said, so, George, if that money is like, you know, it's vaporized, it's gone. Um, and the government's returning the money. Do they do they make good on that 3000 bucks that got burned up? And George tells me, he goes, Brian, have you ever thought have you ever heard of the government? giving money back. <laughs> okay, never mind. He had a good sense of humor. <laughs> I can't imagine. $3,000 was a lot of money back then. That's for sure. <laughs> so are you thinking you might do another true crime book in the future? Yeah, probably. I just don't Ooh. know when. I mean, I've uh, th this has pretty much taken over my life for the last two years. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, well, believe it or not, I've got another book coming out a sci-fi book. Ooh, <laughs> I like sci-fi books. Completely different, completely different uh, genre coming out next spring. So that's taking up an awful lot of my time right now as well. Mm -hmm. So um, well, I, I'm hoping I can do another one. I just don't know what it would be about. There's one story that I really like. There's been one book written about it and it's in the Pacific Northwest and it uh, is the coolest crime. It is cool crime i'm telling you it's really awesome any it's, hints <laughs> uh it's it is it took place at the turn of the century around 1905 okay. and it was it was a uh a cult a cult what was the name i can't think of the guy's name but it took place down on the oregon coast around okay. the, around here and the guy uh it it attracted a lot of women okay and you know, the leader the leader was very charismatic and he would do lots of laying of hands while they were undressed and fucking <laughs> <laughs> and but how the whole thing played out was you know people shooting other people relatives shooting relatives it was a great great tawdry crime let me tell oh. you yeah, yeah you so should I, again, definitely write that. <laughs> I, again, I was surprised that uh, that there's only been one book written about it. So I'm 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 looking into that one. Well, if you end up doing that, let let us know and you can come back. We'll definitely cover it. I love anything cult related. <laughs> um, so uh, your current book comes out in the spring. What's it called? Uh, it's called Death Warrant. Death it's kind Warrant. of kind of uh, Black Mirror ish. Oh, a bit more of a sense of humor, and it's not it's not as you know, Black Mirror is all technology gone bad. This right. isn't technology gone bad. It's more humanity gone bad. And it takes place in Portland. Fun. Hey, I think our listeners might have some interest in that too. I hope so. So do you have a website or social media where they can find you? Well, um, I have a, a website, brianrjohnston.com. Um, 
not a whole lot of information on it, but uh, you know, if if you're interested in Deep in the Woods, which I hope you are, I am just pick up a copy. It'll make my publisher incredibly happy. And I also recommend people if they're going to pick up a copy, get it at their small bookstore. You know, get it at their mom and pop bookstore. That'll make them very happy too. And it'll make Definitely. me happy. Yeah. We're all we're all about that at Murder in the Rain shopping locally if you can. I have three versions of it on multiple platforms. <laughs> Oh, I like to I like to read a real book and listen sometimes. So oh, that that was trippy. They sent me an audio the audio book, mm-hmm. and I started listening to it, and it was so freaking weird hearing my words coming out of some other dude's mouth on a device. It was just like he's this very is really... talented, though. You have a great voice actor doing oh, this book. Like it, I I was so... impressed by him. Thank you, but it, yeah, it was <laughs> it was strange. It I was bet that strange. is strange. Do you ever read out loud your own work? Oh, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's, I mean, that's what I do when I write, obviously, because we have a podcast, we read what we write, but uh, I find that's how I, I change the most sentences. I do my best editing when I'm reading it out loud. I might look like a crazy person, but no, I enjoy you, doing that. <laughs> you have to do it. When I was in broadcasting, that was, you, you have to read it out loud to hear what it sounds like. Absolutely. Well, thank you for chatting with me, Brian. I, I really appreciate it. I loved this book. I really did. I gave you five stars and oh, I will wow. write a thorough review on our website thank and you. we'll post it there. Um, so yeah, if anyone is interested in learning every little detail they can about this case, I highly recommend it. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks again to Brian Johnston, who took the time out of his evening to chat with me about his research, his writing, and the fruits of his labor deep in the woods. You can likely find this book at a bookstore near you, but I've also posted a link to order from Portland's famous Powell's Books on our website on the tab Murder Reads. And I'm telling you, if you like true crime and you're interested in learning a little bit of history about how the FBI worked back then, or maybe you just like a book that reads more like a novel, you have to check this one out. And make sure you follow our Instagram, Murder in the Rain, because we are very overdue for a giveaway. And I think we should sneak a copy of this book in. Ooh, I think so, too. That would pair nicely with the Patreon game we're about to play. Oh, it sure would. And I have a few highlighter marks in this book, but don't complain about it because it will be free. Heck, she'll. It's like she signed it for you. Shall I sign it? I mean, <laughs> I'll sign Brian's name for you. Signed by someone who read it. <laughs> oh, hello. I got a boner. What? <laughs> and it's ripping through your pants. That's right. <laughs> Your pants made of paper. Paper pants. Paper bag pants. It's a new a new uh type of pants because there's already one called a paper bag pants. Yeah, they're called Mr. Showoffs. Oh my god. (laughs) Don't kiss me too hard. (laughs) You owe me a pair of pants. Paper pants. They're called Mr. Showoffs, not paper pants. Oh sorry, Mr. Showoffs. You owe me another pair of Mr. Showoffs. Mr. Showoffs. (laughs) <laughs> Boy, somebody's in a mood. I smoked a bunch of weed. <laughs> you don't care, but I looped the. the no, clip we do of it. care because when you told us that the first time, I was like, "Oh, that's so genius." Yeah, Thank that makes you. sense. I learned it from something, TV shows or something. <laughs> <Cool>. Wow. <laughs>
Go ahead and start whenever I'm going away. <laughs> Can't wait to hear that back. <laughs> Fucking shit. Bloopers. We're recording, right? I'm kind of craving the cinnamon ones. Oh, mm. so good. I love a chocolate graham. Oh, Ooh, yeah. And I love a fudge-covered graham. Ooh. Oh, yeah, those cookies. Ooh. <laughs> Things have, of course... <laughs> <laughs> I'm a goat all of a sudden. They oh, think so. Goats have handlebars. <laughs> Ransom kidnap. Whoa, what happened? I was going to say, give me back my son. <laughs> but I, I, I. You were too late. I botched it. <laughs> don't give me back my son. <clears throat> I don't deserve him. It's a $150 industry. What? <laughs> Suspendy. Suspensive. I'll go have these with you on a on a sex industry. Them and get your cut of that 150 million. I did it again. It's billion. Motherfucker. I am very concerned if this is my writing so far. <laughs> Bet nine out of ten Americans. Well, let me. Wow. Let me. Let me talk like I know how to. <laughs> Mary, Jerry, and Perry. Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me? <laughs> well, Marjorie and Marion. They went by their full names. Marion went by Mary. She didn't though. We got a Mary Jerry Perry. <laughs> Probably <laughs> two Perrys. Mary oh my Jerry, God, Perry, Mary, Jerry, 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 Perry, Perry, and Marge. And Marge. <laughs> Signed George Fox and Marion Parker. Uh, yes. You kind of said George. I did, and I hoped I didn't. Then I was just <laughs> in my head. <laughs> I hoped I didn't. Have you ever done that? Where yes. you're like, did I just think I slurred yes. that? Yes. I'm like, oh, I guess that sounded okay, but I maybe it felt weird just to me. <laughs> no, you said George. I do that a lot. Me too. And then I just wait to I see know. if Josh says something. I'm like, did I? I don't want to retake it, but I think it was good, but maybe not. <laughs> I'm just shocked at apartments providing towels. It was fancy times. My God. <laughs> fancy times, I tell you. Is that why those guys keep going to space? Do they really? So they aren't targets? Do they really go to space? The rich people? Oh, the rich people. <laughs> Hurry, we've got to get to space. They're after us. Daynard was a... Lish- oh, my God. Is that Alicia Yes. Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. (laughs) 